All right, brothers and sisters, good morning. Remember, uh, this is going to be tough on young ears, David. All right, Amy, you're still here, so I trust you can handle this. All right, Amy's 40, so she was worried. Now, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about a couple of things that are going to be a little, uh, you might have some explaining to do, so I'm just giving you a heads up. Also want to say hello. If you are new with us, hello. Good morning, particularly if you're wearing uh, a lime green fedora and then are in the second row and you're my mother. I want to say good morning to you. I know, I know. The reason I get dressed up on Mother's Day, right there. Oh, is that next week? Oh, man. And you're going to miss it. I know. That's all right. So I have to wear a suit? Okay. All right. I have to wear a suit. All right. Now, if you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Matthew. What we are going to do uh, is we're, we're jumping out of Luke for a little bit. I know you'll be terribly bummed. Um, it, just, it just means that Luke will take us into the 2020s, and that'll be just fine. But, but uh, as, as we were praying over... Um, what to talk about in this season of our church, the elders uh, and I really felt like, hey, we just want to remind ourselves of what church is and what it's for, for the same reason that every year, uh, John Wooden, the famous uh, UCLA basketball coach, his first practice, he would instruct his players how to put on their shoes and how to correctly put on their socks. The same reason Vince Lombardi, uh, at the beginning of every training camp, would hold, hold up a football and say, men, this is a football. We, we just want to go, hey, brothers and sisters, this is a church. Because there's just tons of misunderstanding about that. I've been in Israel for a couple of weeks, and I see some very familiar faces. Now, you can't go to Israel and not come back and show pictures. So there's lots of pictures. You're going to get annoyed with pictures. That's just fine. Uh, but, um, but this whole kind of thing has come together. So we want to spend um, a couple of months talking about what, what it is that we do here, why it is that we do it, how we do it, the way that we do it. And, and this is my best shot at articulating everything that drives uh, my convictions about what this, what this being the church should be. So uh, we're going to do a lot of background this morning, and it'll be tough, it'll be thick, it'll be offensive, and then there's a payoff, all right? So, so well, Matthew 16, Lotus verse 13. This is the first place church, the word church is mentioned by Jesus, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of what? Caesarea Philippi. Now, one of the interesting things that happens when you're actually over there in Israel uh, is that it, it's, it's, you go from black and white television to color. Now, for those of you that are young, TVs used to be in black and white. I know you don't know this. Phones used to have wires to them, too, and, and people read newspapers. These are all things you'll read about in ancient history class later. But, um, but, but back in the day... TVs were just in black and white. And then, and, then, and then when they shifted to color, I mean, it was like a whole new world. This, that's what Israel was like. You're going from black and white, words on a page, to color. So when it says that Jesus goes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, we all go, boring, we, uninteresting. But that actually sets up everything that's about to happen next. So I want to talk about Caesarea Philippi. You're going to love it. Go to the iPad. Now... One of the magic things of the iPad is that you can draw on this. Caesarea Philippi is all the way up here. All right? Jesus, you are dying to know, did most of his ministry right on that part of the Sea of Galilee in three cities, Chorazin, Bethesda, uh, and Capernaum. And, and obviously it was from Nazareth. 
But Caesarea Philippi is way north. Some estimates maybe 30 miles straight, straight north above the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is named as a city because Herod the Great built a temple to his patron, Caesar Augustus. So Caesarea, Caesarea, a city dedicated to Caesar. Herod's son, Philip, you're dying to know, took this and made it his regional headquarters. So it was the Caesar city dedicated to Caesar, but it was by Philip, all right? So it was called Caesarea Philippi, a city dedicated to Caesar where Philip, the Tetrarch, one of the son of Herod the Great, ruled over this part of Israel. I know, you love this. Now, Caesarea Philippi was important during the time of Jesus because it was a Hellenistic cosmopolitan city, yes, but also because it sat at the foot of a mountain called Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon, as they would say it. At the very foot of Mount Hermon, there were springs that came out of the mountain and formed the headwaters of the Jordan River. If you know your biblical story, Jordan River is really, really significant in biblical history. So any time in the ancient world where water came up from the ground, typically you would have some sort of fertility cult near there. Now a fertility cult meant you would worship a god or a goddess of fertility. Why? Because the gods and goddesses of fertility resided in the underworld. And what was the way to get to the underworld? The way to get to the underworld was through these springs, through these water sources. So uh, at Caesarea Philippi, there was this brig spring. Uh, Josephus calls it bottomless. The idea was that the, the gods, the fertility gods would come up. They would do their fertility thing, create fertility in the world, and they'd go back down to the underworld. Now, the underworld in Greek is called Hades or Hades. In Hebrew, it's called Sheol. It's watery depths where the dead reside and where the gods go during the winter. This is all very important, all right? I kid you not, this all matters. Now, this is Caesarea Philippi. So, in the Old Testament, you read about uh, the gods named Baal and Ashereth. These were fertility gods worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. When Alexander the Great shows up 330 B.C., he Hellenizes those tribal gods so that at Caesarea Philippi you worship the shepherd fertility god Pan, P-A-N. Now let me show you Pan. He's awesome. Not. Pan is uh, half man, half goat. Pan um, was, uh, the, Pan, because he was a fertility god, um, uh, he, he, he is often pictured with a six foot high phallus just said that in church, uh, because, and, and, and the, often during the celebrations of Pan, you would parade that through the streets of the city, and, and, and people would bow down to it and worship it as a sign of fertility. So Pan is very, very sexual, very perverted in the way Pan comes across. In fact, you see he's playing a flute there. We know the Pan flute. Pan, the way Pan um, provided fertility is he would come out of these dark underworld sort of uh, caves and he would copulate with beings called nymphs. And uh, one nymph he was after actually turned herself into reeds and so he plays a reed flute or a pan flute and pan when he played the flute would create something called panic which would be an extreme state of terror or arousal depending on whether or not you worshipped him. This is pan uh, in, the, in the ancient sculptures, this is Pan seducing. Pan was a seducer. 
So he's, he's seducing a nymph right here. You see this all over the place, but very evil looking. Uh, this is him playing the flute uh, and seducing nymphs. So the idea was Pan would come up out of the underworld in the spring. He would copulate with nymphs. The, and, and that act would create rain uh, and babies and lambs and fertility for the region. This was what it looked like in Jesus' day. Okay, now, I need to show you, I need to draw some things. This cave right here is called the Grotto of Pan. It is where the water flowed out of the mountain. Mount Hermon, very famous mountain in the Old Testament. The snow would seep into the ground and the water would come out from the cave of this mouth right here. This is where Baal was worshipped. This is where Asherus was worshipped. And after Alexander the Great, this is where Pan is worshipped. Now look at me. This is relevant. Okay, stay with me. Stay, trust me. Well, trust Jesus and give me the benefit of the doubt. Now this, this cave was called the gate of Hades, the gates of hell, okay? Because this was where the beings would come up from Hades, do the thing, go back into Hades. So this was called the gate of Hades, the gate of hell. But there were many different gods worshipped here. This was a temple to Augustus. Herod the Great built this right over that cave as a way to honor Herod the Great. Here, and you can't see it, I'm going to show you pictures of it. This was called the Courtyard of Pan. Pan was, these are called niches. Pan was in here, and then there were little niches around him. I know this is awesome. But that's where you would worship Pan. This was a temple to Zeus. This was a place where, uh, if, if Pan is half man, half goat, what animal is central to the worship of Pan, do you think? Goats. Goats were sacred, so there were two shrines to goats. Live goats were down here. The dead ones were buried here. I'm going to show you pictures of all this. But here's what you need. This is how evil, and I'm sorry for the offensive language, but this is how evil this place was. To coax Pan out of the underworld so that he would come out and provide fertility for the region, you would take this six-foot-high thing and you would parade it through the town. About 100,000 people would show up. Then you would bring out the sacred goats who were in heat, and they would mate in front of you. Then you would have a, a, a man dressed up as Pan, and women dressed up as nymphs reenact supposedly Pan's activity with the nymphs. And then there would be something introduced called pandemonium, I kid you not, where all the people in attendance would begin to copulate with each other. Male, female, male, male, female, female, humans, goats. This is the viol I, I did a Google image search on Pan, and my accountability software went berserk. All sorts of warnings, danger, Will Robinson, because literally, you can't find him without him being sexually provocative. I mean, it, it's, it was absolutely crazy. Because it's connected to fertility, this is the way you coaxed Pan out of the gates of Hades. Now, one last thing that's interesting. This whole complex is called the Rock of the Gods. Why? Because there were many gods here. There was Zeus. You actually have uh, Nemesis was another god. You have Echo was a god. Uh, Hermes was a god. Pan, Pan was a god. Augustus was a god. They were all worshipped here. This was called the Rock of the Gods. And you're very excited. Now, this is what it looks like today. 
Not terribly impressive. In 1879, there was an earthquake so that the spring no longer comes out of the cave, although originally this is where it came out. Notice that's, where, that's the niche where pan would be placed. What it looks like now. That's the cave where the river originally came out of. This, this was literally called the gates of Hades. The gates of hell. Literally. Not very impressive today. This is where the courtyard of Pan was, right here. So you put Pan here, with horns or something, and then you had nymphs. So a nymph was named Echo, a nymph was a Nemesis, so he, this is where you would worship them. This is, so that's a close-up of one of those niches. This was the temple to Augustus that was in front of the cave. So not very impressive, right? But this right here is the base of that temple. And and this is the whole complex. This whole thing right here was called the Rock of the Gods. And this is looking out this way at it, right? So it's just nothing but rubble. But you can see just the faintest outlines. Here was the temple for Zeus. Right there you would worship. Uh, this was where they, they kept some of the goats, the courtyard. This was, uh, remember I told you they would bury the goats? When the, the shrine goats, they were actually buried in this, in these little holes in here. That's where the shrine goats were buried. So they were even honored after they had died. Now, you're all dying of curiosity about why, good Lord, why did we just go through that? Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Jesus did almost all of his ministry here. Does Caesarea Philippi look on the way to anywhere? Is it on the way? No, it's all the way up here. Some estimate 30 miles away. It's not on the way to Jerusalem. It's not where he did any ministry. We have no record of him going here except for this one time. So I want you to understand, this is very strategic for what he's about to do and to say. In the Bible, when it says he went to this region, don't just assume that's boring Bible stuff. Because if if you were walking with him or hearing this, you would have known what was in Caesarea Philippi. In fact, there were some rabbis that taught that when Messiah shows up, the gates of Caesarea Philippi will be destroyed because the Messiah cannot live in a world where that city exists. It was, it was, the, it was the Las Vegas, but even worse, of Jesus' day. So, Jesus goes to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He's not, he's not, uh, going, he's not passing through. He's gone there specifically to teach this lesson. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a messianic title at this point in his ministry. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then, if you've been in church, you know this very famous passage. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, put this back up, if you would. Notice Peter's answer. Keep that up there. Notice Peter's answer. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of what? The living God. As opposed to all of that. I mean, you can see Jesus in the region. Who do people say that I am? Well, they're this prophet or this prophet. But what about you? 
you're the Messiah, and this isn't said anywhere else. You are the son of the living God. A very Jewish answer. The Jews hated this place. Remember, Peter is maybe 20, and the rest of the disciples are teenagers. So imagine if I told you, hey, we're going to take our junior high group to Las Vegas. (laughs) Would you let them go? You wouldn't let them go. High schoolers, we're going to go 12 to run ratio, adults to kids, and we're going to all go to Vegas for an important faith lesson, right? We'd all go, well, why can't you do it here? So Jesus says, who do people say that I am? You're this, this, this. Who do you say that I am? You are the son of the living God. Now, this is the first place Jesus mentions church. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you, uh, I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this, what? I will build my church. Now, let me ask you a question. Keep that up there. Catholics say the rock that the church is built on is Peter. And Paul does write all over that the church was built on the apostles. No question. Protestants will typically say it's Peter's confession that was the rock upon which the church is built. And certainly the confession that Jesus is Lord is part of that. But it also is highly probable that when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, he meant that one. The rock of the gods. Upon that rock. I will build my church. Now you said, now, come on, you're making that up. Oh, really? What's he say next? And the what? Won't prevail against it. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now, is that just some random image? Does Jesus ever use this image anywhere else? He does not. You're looking at the gates of hell when he says this. So think about the significance of what Jesus has done. Hey, 12 teenagers. Most pagan place. Let's take our teenagers to some strip club in Las Vegas. That's the equivalent. And say, you are going to conquer this. Would anyone have believed? No. I mean, this, this had been permanent for generations. This was as vile as you could go. Do you see what Jesus is saying to these teenagers? You're not going to go back to your nice warm enclave in Capernaum, your nice tiny fishing village. Where am I going to build my church? I'm going to build it right there. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what are gates? Are gates offensive or defensive? Defensive, right? Nobody charges anybody with gates. Hey, bring out the gate. Nobody does that. Gates protect. So what is the image Jesus is giving? It's the same image he gave several weeks ago if you were here. We are plundering the kingdom of the strong man. You, 12 teenagers, actually 11, with the power of my spirit and resurrection in you, you're actually going to turn this whole thing upside down so that 2,000 years later, that is a tourist trap and this this is full of living stones who worship the living God now let's say this is right what are the implications for how we understand what it is that we do here because I always thought well the church is supposed to be a refuge yes 
But if this is true, it's also a staging area for invasion. I always thought, I always thought the church was just to be the place where the warm fuzzies are really celebrated. But that's not the image Jesus is giving here, is it? The image of Jesus that it's Jesus giving here is that you're to go to the most pagan place and build my church there. And that's what the disciples did, did they not? Today it's a pile of rubble, but here you are. No one's singing songs to Pan today or Caesar Augustus today. But Jesus, who never built a building, he built a movement. And you and I are inheritors of that. And then notice what Jesus says after this. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and what? And suffer many things. That he must be killed and on the third day he will rise from the dead. How will this place be conquered? How will it be conquered? Will it be political activism that conquers this place? Clever bumper stickers. Good works. Sacrificial love. Prayer. Holiness. Purity. Truth. Goodness. Mercy. Foot washing. The Eucharist. Baptism. Those are the weapons we got. And evidently, those weapons are powerful enough to take down something like this. Now the problem is, no one believes that. You all say you believe it, I say I believe it, no one believes it. Think about what's going on in our world. Okay, so you've got Bruce Jenner doing this thing that Bruce Jenner's doing. You've got what's going on in Baltimore, and an unbelievable racial tension right now in our, our country. Brutal. And it's just going to get worse. You've got the, the, the earthquake and the, and the tidal avalanches, you know, in Nepal. How many thousands have been displaced there, right, every day. I mean, and, and, and we, have, we have a culture that just feeds on fear. So there's always something new to be afraid of. What would happen if a, if a group of people, let's say 11 teenagers, decided to actually believe that the work of the kingdom of God is not dependent upon what Caesar was in power or what president was in office or what the Supreme Court ruled about the nature of a family? What if a whole group of people actually believed this thing is unstoppable and indestructible? It's subtle, it's hidden, it's quiet. Jesus said it's like a little batch of leaven that infects a whole batch of dough. It, it is, it's like a little, bit, a little bit of seed that takes over a whole field. It's indestructible. It's unstoppable. And God's people need to repent of their being afraid. The culture war that we've been fighting has been the wrong war the whole time. Should we be involved in politics? You bet. But is that our hope? Not even remotely. But you wouldn't know it from the way that we talk. Should we be involved civically? You bet. We need people on school boards. We need people in dentist's office. We need, we need people everywhere. Yes, you're already there. And do it in the name of Jesus and in his name and with his power, yes. But our hope, I mean, if you want proof of this, the best way to kill the church is to make it the state religion, and the best way to have the church explode is to persecute it. And so people are saying, oh, persecution's coming. Yeah, thankfully. Because it, it may actually now cost something to follow Jesus. 
I don't know about you, this image provokes in me such dissatisfaction for what this is. Did Jesus die and rise again so that a group of people could meet for an hour and five minutes in a worship and teaching event and evaluate it the same way they evaluate movies? Did I like it? Did Jesus die so that we could divide ourselves over music styles and which one's holier and which one's better? Did Jesus die and rise again so that we could argue endlessly over minor points that have no eternal significance to the people who are perishing without Jesus? No. When you read the book of Acts, does anybody look at that book and say, man, that's just like us? People are lamenting the loss of people going to church. Well, sometimes I don't blame them. If all this can be explained as good motivational speaking, my name's Matt, I'm a motivational speaker down by the river, or this can just be explained as cool, like minor keys when we really want to make emotional point, who wants to be a part of that? I don't. I don't. When I look at the church in Acts, it's unstoppable. It wasn't perfect. Thankfully, it wasn't perfect. They were jacked up. They were arguing over stuff. I got it. But look at what happened to them. Hey, we're going to beat you an inch, within an inch of your life and tell you not to say anything about Jesus. Sorry, we can't help but testify about what we've seen and heard. Right? We're going to threaten you, imprison you, torture you, crucify you. Doesn't matter. It just kept going. Is the church in America stoppable or unstoppable? Well, it seems stoppable, right? Just change the service time. (laughs) Or change the music style. Or don't have your favorite teacher there for a while. It's just another list of consumer goods and services. And I am so tired of it. So we want to take a couple of months to go, this is a football That's how you put your socks on. And I hope that the cost of spectating here increases. And that there might be some folks that just go, I don't know. Because Jesus isn't impressed with a full room. Jesus isn't impressed with rock and worship. He's looking for hearts that are fully open. And so men and women, I just want us to consider what would it be like to have a whole community of people determined to find the gates of hell in their world and to do Jesus' work right there. In his name, with his power. And that this this just becomes the staging area where we come back, take notes, spur one another on to good deeds, to love. That this becomes not the focus at all. This is just the reminder. What would happen I mean, I look at what God did with 12 teenagers. He changed the Roman world, right? What could he do with us? And so if you're feeling like, oh man, this is like bad. No, it's just, I just want to wake up. I don't know about you, I want to settle for the full thing, not just part of it. And so um, my hope for you is that this week you would read the book of Acts and that, that you would wake up.
like I'm waking up, to just go, Lord, I don't want to be part of something explainable. I don't want to be part of another event. I don't want to be part of hype. I need your Holy Spirit to come and to do things only you can do. I'm just, I don't want to play at this anymore. If what he said was true, we should look a lot different. So close your eyes if you would. And perhaps it would be appropriate to simply release our expectations, preferences, desires, or even understandings of what, quote, a church is and should be, and to engage with the scriptures afresh and allow them to wake us up. Because I don't know anybody that wants to be part of a spiritual business. I know a lot of people that want to be a part of a revolution. And so in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would pour out your spirit on us to revive our hearts, to awaken us, to play sharp notes. God, we pray that we might begin again to just consider what it is that we do and why it is that we do it. And God, if we just had a Bible, what would we draw up for this place? And so, Lord, we pray that you would do something mighty that only you get credit for. And, Lord, that you would remind us of what the gates of hell look like and that they have no power. Father, pour out courage over us and a security, assurance, and grace.